Okay, now let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Our Father, again, we come to Scripture realizing that only by grace have you seen fit to continue speaking to a fallen human race and continue the offer of salvation. We thank you for that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that through his, uh, our position in him tonight that we can learn through the illuminating Holy Spirit the content of your word. If we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a little while, so let's uh, review a few concepts here that we're going through. Um, this, of course, is the chapter 5 in the framework. So talking about the church age and how it ends. And uh, we have spent considerable time over the previous weeks dealing uh, with, on page, um, well, we started on page 112, where we just noted the difference between Israel and the church. And we said, and I say this again, and I'll say, you'll hear me say it again, you cannot get together the prophecies of the Bible if you don't, in your mind, have a clear distinction between the church and Israel and the Gentile nations. Prophecies are given about all three entities. And what happens, too many people mix them up. They take prophecies that are having to do with Israel and they apply it to the church. Then they take prophecies of the church and they read it back into Israel. And you have to, it's the old story. Um, if you can think in terms of a contract, a mortgage contract, an auto loan, um, any, kind of a, any kind of a contract that we would write, think about to whom is the contract written. A contract has parties to that contract. And the problem that theologians are really sloppy about down through church history is they take this, they t love to talk about the word covenant, not realizing, of course, that the meaning of the word covenant is contract. And then they never watch to see to whom the contract was made. And that's the key, because there are contracts that are made with Israel. They are not made with the church. They are made with Israel. And remember we said the Abrahamic contract, the three promises, land, seed, and a worldwide blessing. And now the three areas that God promised the seed of Abraham, and that means the physical seed of Abraham. Yes, it's the spiritual remnant out of Abraham. And yes, the church shares some of those blessings, but the blessings the church shares doesn't happen because the church is the new Israel. The church shares them because Jesus Christ comes out of Abraham and we are in him. So that's how we get into the grace picture. And uh, on page 112, we talked about a very obvious thing, and yet I have read very few Christian writers that even mention it, and that is that Israel it has a calendar the church does not, and that the Israel has a clock that runs certain times and certain seasons. The church does not. The, down the bottom of page 112, another large characteristic between the church and Israel is that Israel is a nation. The church is not. Israel, therefore, defines her enemies in terms of other earthly nations that come against her. The church does not. The church has heavenly powers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. So the enemies are different. 
And then we started on page 113 with measures of progress for Israel and the church. And we want to just finish that, that section. But again, to review, first we're going to deal with things that have to do with Israel's function in history. Then we'll deal with the church's function in history and how the church works in history. So uh, let's, let's put on the overhead here uh, a little diagram. We're talking first about Israel. Israel is a nation. As a nation, what does Israel have? Well, Israel has a land. Israel has laws. And those laws encompass all of society. There are society-wide rules and regulations. So, those laws include how a government functions. They include loans. They include business law. They include criminal law, and so forth and so on. You will not find these regulations in this detail in the New Testament because the church is not a nation. The church consists of believers who live in many nations. So there's fun fundamentally, structurally, a total different thing going on here. And it's important we realize this. So in looking at Israel's historical existence, we said there are certain principles. In page 114, we covered table number 8. And we said that if you look at these key passages in the Old Testament, they all come out with a picture that Israel is going to go on into the future. She is going to apostatize. And as apostatized, she will be disciplined and go into an exile period. That is all prophesied from Moses' day on. Now, the details of that prophecy get, get more uh, quantified as we go on in time. And this nation will go into exile, and then it will return. And then the principle is that they will have, finally... Uh, the Lord will pull them back and restore them, and then they will have the kingdom. So that's a rough, approximate picture of the nation Israel. And we said that you can see those passages, those are the key passages, by the way, in table number eight, because that's mosaic, and that predates the prophets, and that means that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the later prophets are going to amplify and apply that general outline, going to fill in all the details as, as history goes on. Then we went on, and uh, we wanted to talk a little bit on page 115 about some of the terminologies that had to do with Israel. And there are some vocabularies that are important to understand. We'll review some of those so we can get into the church tonight. There's terms like tribulation, the day of Yahweh, Jacob's trouble, and a metaphor of birth. And these, understand, all this terminology you see on page 115 has to do with Israel. It was with Israel that this terminology arose, out of Israel's history. So we want to look then... At first, uh, in the first paragraph on page 115, we talk about the tribulation. So here's one of the terms, vocabulary words, to learn. Tribulation. It's the word, equals word, trouble, suffering. It's a common word for, for suffering, but if you think about going back to the picture on table number eight, 
here's the picture. If you look at that picture, <coughs> you see where the trouble comes. The trouble always comes when Israel goes negative toward God. She gets discipline, 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 and even this exile is discipline. So this is suffering, 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 and suffering. When Israel's out of the land, it's tribulation. When Israel's in the land in disobedience, it's tribulation. Why? Because that's the way God set history up. Um, also, if you want to notice on, on that first paragraph, page 115, the underlined section says, this tribulation period, this look forward to, will bring about Israel's final repentance. Now, this tribulation, this, this exile here turned out longer than what... Um, what it appeared to be at first, so I'm going to amplify that simple diagram. As time went on, Daniel found out that Israel had a history. She went into exile for 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, Daniel, looking at Jeremiah's prophecy, prayed that the nation would be restored. But however, the nation was only partially restored and the clock began to tick on 7 times 70, or 490 year period. And so God said there had to be 490 years uh, that they would still be out of it. And at the end of that, then they would have a kingdom. So this is, a, this is an added detail. So that picture that was kind of fuzzy back in Moses' day gets into sharper and sharper focus. And the rationale, we won't go into this because we're not exegeting Old Testament, but there's a reason for the 490 years too, because anybody realize in the Old Testament why there were 70 years? Jeremiah said to the nation that you're going to be out of the land, I'm going to kick you out for 70 years. And the reason for that is, I'm kicking you out one year for every Sabbath year that you fail to observe. And this goes back to a structure inherent in the Mosaic Law Code. The deal was that if you had a business, all business, you're, you, you know, it didn't matter the difference if you were farming, or which was the big business of the time, or whatever the business was, you had to design your business and your cash flow in your business so that in six years you would save enough money to pay for a seventh year with no business. So that's how their economy worked. Six years you worked, seventh year you had a sabbatical. And it was designed so that Israel would understand that God provides for her and that her blessing doesn't ultimately come from her work. So obviously, if you're thinking about that kind of an economy where you have a law that says you can't sell, buy or sell, I mean, you, they had food and that kind of thing, but the large-scale businesses kind of went out. You had to save. So you think about it, for every sixth a year, every year you had to save up one-sixth of a year for savings. <clears throat> and, and economists have pointed out that had they followed this, they would have had one of the most powerful economies in the world because it made people plan for the future. You couldn't live in that kind of a society and not be thinking in your head, wait a minute, you know, the seventh year, the sabbatical's coming up, I got seven years, I got six years, I got five years, I got four years, and you're thinking about this, and what are you doing? You're saving money. 
So it forces and compels savings. Rather than spending on credit, people were saving their money for the future. So it built up, it would have, had they followed it, it would have built up an economic reserve for the day of trouble, but they didn't follow it. So 70 times during the year, there were 70 missing years going on there where they just ignored it, just went ahead and forget the Sabbath and we're not going to work anyway. So they didn't shut down. And so God said, okay, then for every year that you didn't shut down, I'm going to put you out of the land. And he, as he says to, in Jer through Jeremiah, the land you worked and you worked and you worked. Now that land that you worked and you overworked it is going to lie fallow. So away with you. And that's the reason for 70. But now think about it. How often does the sabbatical come along? Once every seven years. So question. If they missed 70 Sabbaths, how many years were involved in that missing 70 Sabbaths? Seven times 70. So they ultimately, for 490 years, they were disobedient. Now, they had 800 years of history. So for 490 out of the 800 years, they were out of it. Kind of not too good percent. But that's, that's apparently, God said, one for one then, I'm going to keep you out of a year for every year of disobedience. So anyway, this is the story that's going on, and then they come back in to the kingdom. However, all of this business is trouble. Trouble, 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 trouble. And then as you get down toward just prior to the kingdom, there's going to be real trouble. That becomes Daniel's 70th week, which we'll get into later. So what's the purpose of all the trouble? Not to erase Israel from history, but to do what? To stimulate repentance. So the whole object of the tribulation is to get Israel to respond. It's one of the great purposes of tribulation. People hit the New Testament, don't read the Old Testament, haven't got a clue what the tribulation is all about. The tribulation is part of an Old Testament schema of history to produce an effect on the nation Israel. Now, the word tribulation, if you turn in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 4, early on in the development of Old Testament revelation, the word tribulation had already been associated with a future age. It's not something that Paul invented, John invented, or somebody else, or worse, you'd think the dispensationalists just invented it. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30, Here's Moses writing. Here's his word to the nation. And he says, and here's where it's defined. Here's the first occurrence of the word tribulation referring to a future time period in this scheme of history. Deuteronomy 4.30, when you are in tribulation, there's the word, and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Now, there's where the terminology gets started, and you'll notice it's independent of the church. It has nothing to do with the church. The church doesn't even exist here. It's not going to exist for 14, 15 centuries future. So all this is vocabulary that has been set up prior to the coming of the church into the realm of history. This is an Israelite term for Israelite purposes for God's plan for Israel. Now, um, 
the tribulation also took on another note in that table eight. Remember, we went through those passages. The tribulation had to deal with another problem. The Gentile nations that God used to discipline Israel get arrogant. And Moses predicts that in Deuteronomy 32 when he says, the Gentile nations that God uses to discipline Israel will get arrogant, proudful, and think that they're the ones that have done this, and Israel's God is nothing, and their gods are something. And God says, wait a minute. You Gentile nations are going to learn a lesson here too. It's not just for Israel. Because I'm concerned that you're going to misinterpret this history. You're going to interpret this history as saying that the God of Israel, because Israel suffers, their God is weak. And I can't afford people to draw that false conclusion. So in order to straighten out the Gentiles, I'm going to discipline them too. And they will understand that I am God. So that's how God works in history. Now, this a little footnote here, an aside on our modern-day news. This is why one of the reasons, is that, and it's a, it's a reason that's very deeply embedded in the culture of the Middle East, the reason you have a lot of um, hatred of Israel, almost an irrational hatred of Israel. You can have very intelligent... We, we were, my wife and I were visiting a, a doctor friend of ours, and he, has a, he was in practice with a Muslim doctor. And this Muslim doctor he was in practice with was a very smart man, very good doctor. But they happened to go down to D.C. and walking around the mall, and I guess somewhere they saw a menorah along with an American flag or something. And this guy just came unglued. He says, you Americans don't understand the Jews are taking you over. You're all under a Zionist plot. Your job is to destroy the Arabs. And he went on in this whole tirade about uh, expressing his animosity to the existence of Israel and particularly Jews in America. Uh, when the nitwits ran into the World Trade Center, um, the plot, the, the story was in Arab circles that it was a Jewish, the Jews did it. And that the Jews that morning, before the planes crashed in the World Trade Center, all the Jews didn't go to work that day so they wouldn't be killed. And it was the Zionists that crashed the planes in the plane. I mean, this is the kind of thinking that these people actually think this way. I mean, normally intelligent people, when they get into this area, they just become totally irrational. Now, there's a deep cultural reason for that, and I just want to address that because it, it, it comes out of understanding the world from which we get the Bible. Down in ancient history, all through ancient Near Eastern history, nations viewed their prosperity in war and peace as a sign of whether their gods were triumphant or not. Okay? Now, after Muhammad started Islam, what did the Muslims do? Immediately, right during Muhammad's lifetime. They went about to conquer with a sword. Just remember that. In his lifetime, the prophet Muhammad started holy war in the name of Allah. And by the time 
that they're always fussing about. And if you're in school or you're, in, in, you're reading the newspapers or you're talking to your neighbors, um, if you have any Arabs around or you have any Muslims around, they'll always bring up the Crusades. You Christian Crusaders. See, that's the nasty word for them. They, they, that, when you hear the word crusade, your ear needs to prick up and understand how they view the word crusade. They think that Christians are always going to crusade against Muslims and kill them. This is why they said, for example, that Jerry Falwell, Franklin Graham, and uh, Pat Robertson, given a chance, would crusade against all Muslims in America. They kill them. It comes out of that mentality. But the thing to you to remember, the little point of history, you want to be prepared if that ever happens to you and somebody brings the Crusades up and says, oh, Christians crusaded against the Muslims, ask them a simple question. What were the Muslims doing in southern Europe? How had they taken over northern Africa? They'd taken it over by the sword prior to any crusade. So they were the ones that started the wars. They dominated North Africa. They started invading Europe. They jammed the commerce. Part of the recent crusades had nothing to do with religion. It had everything to do with Marco Polo and other people who had gotten a discovery that the Chinese had products they wanted to buy and sell, and they couldn't run the produce across the Middle East without getting ripped off by the Muslims. So the idea there was to penetrate the Middle East so we can get some lines of communications established for our businesses. It wasn't just religion, it was economics too. So anyway, big point is that to the Arab mind, the existence of Israel is an insult. Do you see the connection why they think that way? Think about it. Prior to 1948, there was no Israel there. Hadn't been any Israel there since the rise of the Prophet Muhammad. So here the Muslims conquer the Middle East, they conquer North Africa, they dominate Southern Europe, and they, and of course in World War II the Ottoman Empire collapsed and so forth, but, but you know, they still had basic control of the Middle East, and then all of a sudden, smack dab in the heartland of the Middle East, what happens? Back come the Jews. And it's the West that's pushing the Jews out, because the West was anti-Semitic, couldn't stand Jews either. So the West has a problem with their Jews, and where do they dump them? But in the backyard of the Arabs. That's their view of history. That you Westerners, you, did, you didn't deal with your Jewish problems, so you put them all here, and now we've got to deal with them. But moreover, more importantly, the fact that Israel has survived. In 1948, when Israel was declared a nation, the Arab nations all around had radio messages into the Arabs that lived inside the domain of the territorial Israel. And they said, come on out. In three weeks, we will destroy the Jewish state and you can have your homes back. So, a lot of Arab families, believing the radio, packed up their suitcases, packed up their clothing, drove their cars back out on the border where they discovered something. The Jews that went south, thinking they would go into Egypt, couldn't go into Egypt because the Egyptians blocked them. 
They wanted them to come out of the state of Israel, but they didn't want to assimilate these Jews, that were, these Arabs that were coming out of Israel, so they kept them in these ghettos right around the borders. And that's called Gaza. Then on the east, they tried to go east into what was the country east of Israel? Jordan. And they came up to the border, and Jordan didn't want them. But these are the Arab countries telling them to come on out. So they go out, and then they can't get accepted, so Jordan won't keep them. So Jordan walls them off. And now we have the West Bank. Then the Jews try to go, the Arabs flee to the north, trying to go into Lebanon. And Syria and the Lebanese don't want them. So now they've got refugee camps there. But that's okay. It's going to be three weeks. We're going to destroy the Jewish state. Allah says so. Well, in three weeks, there wasn't any destruction of the Jewish state. The Jewish state defeated all the Arab armies from all the countries. Now we've got a theological problem. We've got a theological problem. What happened to Allah? As long as the Jewish state exists, it is an insult to Muslim theology. Because what it says is, is that Allah hasn't been victorious over the Jewish God. The Jewish God has been victorious over Allah. And that's why when you hear in the newspapers about negotiations, they can negotiate from now until hell freezes over and they'll never get anywhere because one side, the Jews, are going to survive and the other side says, you're not going to survive. We are going to eliminate Israel. It's not about the West Bank. It's ultimately about the survival of the state of Israel. So now if you come to the negotiation tables, you can smile, play chess, eat ice cream, and do whatever you want to. But as long as one side of the table says we are going to exist, and the other side of the table says you're not going to exist, where does the negotiation go? You can't have a negotiation. So that's the problem in the Middle East. And it comes out of a theology that I am victorious when my God is victorious. And if I lose, that's a reflection on the power of my God. So in ancient history, God knew that. And so during this tribulation period, when Israel is getting creamed, God says, I'm going to allow it only so far because I'm going to protect my name. And I'm going to see to it that Israel survives because if Israel survives, it's a testimony to me. Catch the mentality here? Got to see this mentality. That's what's underlying. That's the, in this musical piece that's going on, that's the theme song underneath, the glory of God. And the reason the Arabs think the way they do is because they partially remember, they don't realize this, but they're really partially remembering a biblical mentality except it's perverted and attached to, to Allah. But the idea of God being victorious is actually goes back to the Old Testament. Okay, so that's the background of this tribulation period. So Deuteronomy 4:30 shows the theology of the tribulation. There's the earliest statement in the Bible over the theology of the tribulation. When you are in distress, you is not the church, it's Israel. When Israel is in distress, and all these things have come upon you. That's the structure of table number eight. All these things have come upon you. 
you will return to the Lord your God. There will be a national conversion and they will accept Jehovah God. Of course, they will recognize that it's Jesus Christ. And he will listen to his voice. For the Lord is a compassionate God. He will not fail nor destroy you, nor forget the contract with your fathers, which he swore to them. And the fathers in Moses' day was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. So there's the theology that was amplified in a hundred different ways all down through the pages of the Old Testament. Okay, there's the word tribulation. So when you think tribulation, and we're going to talk a lot about the tribulation and the church and everything else, in your mind's eye, learn to go back to the Old Testament to load up that term with its proper original meaning. Okay? Now Deuteronomy 4.30 is a key verse. Lots of other verses, but I picked out the earliest one, where it's clear in the vocabulary. Now on page 115 is another term. This is a term that's used in prophetic texts, and again, we want to be careful we understand it. And that's called the Day of the Lord. So let's get this on the board up here. Now, lest we get too involved, let's keep this as simple as possible. Have you ever heard the expression in everyday speech, uh, the team had their day? Now, what do we mean when we say that? When, well, she had her day, it means that it was a success. It means that there was a day of triumph. It was, it was a neat time. Something was accomplished. You had your day. Well, that's the, very similar to what this means. The day of the Lord means the Lord has a special event that happened. He gets special glory by doing certain things. Um, in the paragraph, last paragraph, page 115, notice the sense it says it could refer to God's indirect intervention through human armies. I mention this, and you want to underline the indirect because later on in the church and the tribulation we're going to cover a particular eschatological view that's rampant around Christian circles that thinks that whenever there's an army attacking Israel that's not God's direct intervention well, sorry go back in the Old Testament I list all the passages there you can see that the day of the Lord means that God there's several, several things that he does and there are many days of the Lord in the Old Testament but he uses his various instruments in God's hands the instruments can be what we call direct instruments that is miraculous judgments or it can be indirect and that would be human agents but both, direct and indirect, are used. And both are called upon as something in the day of the Lord. Um, uh, in, the, in the mid part of that paragraph on page 115, you notice where it says, Babylon against Judah and Egypt is used. It's very clear. All you need is a concordance to see this. So day of the Lord means God has triumphed. He does a mighty work in history. And it's his day. Now, what happened was, 
that the prophets would refer to events in their own time as days of the Lord. The day that Babylon went in and attacked Israel and attacked all the way down into Egypt, that was a day of the Lord. But because of this motif of history, that history was moving toward a culmination, the term day of the Lord came to be used of the future thing that would be really the day of the Lord. Now, on the bottom of page 115, I say the sentence, the future day of the Yahweh will encompass a complex of judgments following the model of earlier occurrences. Geophysical, astronomical, and human armies will be used. And then within that broad period, there will be one particular divine intervention that came to be known by a certain title and qualification. And the title is, The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. This was a day of the Lord above days of the Lord. This would be the ultimate day of the Lord in history. When all nations would gather against Israel only to be defeated by the Lord in human form standing on the Mount of Olives. Thus the term day of the Lord can refer to multiple divine interventions, but they all manifest the same pattern of God judging the nations in righteousness. Some things to remember about day of the Lord before we go any further. Let me write them down so we're clear because later on we're going to take for granted that we know these terms. One, the instrumentalities that God uses can be human or natural. Nature, I mean. It can be mankind doing things or it can be catastrophes in nature. It's not just direct, it's also indirect. It's one of the errors in a certain view of eschatology that we'll talk about later. Guy has made a book out and saying that when God directly, and that's the day of the Lord, when God uses armies against Israel, that's not the day of the Lord. Well, sorry, it doesn't work out that way when you check the Hebrew and the, well, you can check the English um, in the Old Testament. So that's one thing to remember about day of the Lord. Second thing to remember about day of the Lord is it can be one specific event or it can refer to a period where you have a lot of stuff going on. And that's what's so frustrating about this term. Day of the Lord can mean, you might say, a literal day, or it can mean a period of time. And guys flip back and forth between using it this way. So there's a certain what we'll call a latitude of usage of the term. It can be narrow, and it can be broad both ways. And you can test that by going to a concordance and looking at, them, looking it all up. And there are many, many passages that we could refer to. Okay, we've talked about tribulation. We talked a little bit about where that fits and the color of the term and the nuance of the term. We've just talked about day of the Lord. And now we want to talk about a third concept that occurs in the prophetic text and that is birth, childbirth. This is a metaphor that the Lord Jesus uses, but he didn't originate it. If you look on page 116, uh, I list some Old Testament occurrences where this metaphor is repeatedly used by the Old Testament prophets. And then I have a quote. Um, 
the quote, by the way, comes from a fellow who is a brilliant language scholar, Randy Price, I, I know him. Um, Randy um, is a Texan, he grew up in Texas and so on. Don't let that sway you. Um, he wanted to learn Hebrew because the more he got into the Bible, the more he realized that Hebrew, you have to really master Hebrew. And he was always interested in prophecy. He's the guy that's written the film, done the, a couple of films, you know, on the, on the people that are right now in Jerusalem uh, getting the, the furniture together for the next temple. Randy's the guy that made them knowledge. He's the one that exposed the Christian community to them and brought their projects to the attention of Christians. Now, this is the guy that did that. Anyway, when he was looking around to get his doctorate, he picked the hardest, one of the most difficult and thorough Hebrew training programs there exists, and that's the University of Texas. And uh, he uh, lived in Israel to pick up the language so he could speak it, and then all the lectures and everything else in the University of Texas in these classes were all in Hebrew. They were the rabbis teaching the courses. So Randy's got a very good grasp of Hebrew. And uh, I've had the few times I've actually had a conversation with him, I mean, he's really a good, knowledgeable guy. Anyway, here's a quote from what, something he's written. In Daniel's tribulation text, rabbinic commentators interpret... Let's turn to Daniel 12.1. So here's a, here's a case where we can actually see what the text says. Daniel... Chapter 12, verse 1. This is talking about that future time of trouble for the nation Israel. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Talking about the deliverance of Israel in this future time of tribulation. See how the two go together? Tribulation, rescue of Israel. Tribulation, conversion of Israel. Tribulation, turning of Israel to the Lord. Okay. Here's what Randy says. In Daniel's tribulation text, rabbinic commentators interpreted the time of trouble as a future eschatological time event with a period known as Kabbalim, or the birth pangs. So frightening was the prospect of encountering this time of tribulation preceding the messianic arrival that some sages hoped it would not come in their lifetimes. Now, how's that for prophecy? You just know, oh, we're looking forward to the Lord. Now, this is different. And you want to grab this because this tells you how an Old Testament person would have looked at it. When you see in the New Testament, oh boy, it's going to be great, the Lord's going to come back, something's a little different. And it gets back to the same thing. There is a difference, folks, between Israel and the church. And you cannot go into these passages and just plop the church in any old place. It doesn't fit there. Because the attitude toward the coming of the Lord by the church is utterly different than the coming of the Messiah by Israel. And here's a case in point. Look at them. So frightening was the prospect of encountering this time of tribulation preceding the messianic arrival that some sages hoped it would not come, would not come in their lifetimes. 
Among them was Rabbi Yochanan, who claimed, let the Messiah come, but may I never see it. Now, that's the, that's the attitude of a person living in the Old Testament that understands the, the power and the awesomeness of this coming time of trouble on earth. They don't want to see it. You know, let me die before that day comes. Now, that's different than what you see in Thessalonians and the, and the message to the church. And there's a reason. You can't mix the two together unless you're very careful. So... Israel is seen to have birth pangs. And the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 picks up this Old Testament theme and he starts talking about something that is the beginning of birth pangs. Let's turn to Matthew 24. This is not, we're not going to go through the thing tonight, but I just am going there to just pick out how the Lord uses this Old Testament imagery. It was well known by the Jews of his time. And he talks about verse 8. He's talked about the coming events. And he says, You'll be here wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. But these things must take place. But that end is not yet. And you notice he says, Don't be frightened. What did you just read about that rabbi? He was frightened. He didn't want to live to see the day of the Messiah. So Jesus is talking to the same Jewish mentality. He says, Don't be frightened. For these things must take place. But that's not the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there'll be famines and earthquakes. Notice in verse 7, there are human instrumentalities and there are natural catastrophe instrumentalities, both direct and indirect causes of the tribulation. But, verse 8, all these things are the beginning, beginning of birth pangs. And so it's going to go on and on, and then the, the, the tribulation intensifies. And so this is the beginning of birth pains, and then you're going to actually go into the, the, uh, the delivery and the, the uh, birth pains that come just prior to delivery. And then you have the birth. The birth of what? The kingdom. The idea here is that in order for the kingdom to come, it is going to, on the part of the earth, this planet, and its inhabitants, are going to have to go through something like a woman goes through when she gives birth to her child. It is inevitable. You cannot get a child without childbirth, and you cannot get the kingdom of God without this tribulational period. They go together. And so this is an image that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes all the way through the book of Revelation. So that's the third thing we wanted to deal with tonight was we've dealt with the tribulation, we've dealt with the day of the Lord, and we dealt with birth pains. A couple of other things, but we don't have time because we're not teaching eschatology per se in this course. We're going to outline through the great events. Okay, the bottom of page 116, we talk about Daniel 9. So let's go to Daniel 9 because Daniel 9 is a central expansion of the progress of Revelation because remember Daniel was the foreign minister or he's a high person in the nation of Iraq and the nation of Iran and Daniel was a dedicated Jew 
who read his prophets and knew it well, and come at, at his during his lifetime, he realized that the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah were going to come up. And so, Daniel chapter 9, when he is in the media Persian Empire, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, thank God he put this in here because it enables us to start the clock for Israel because these historical notices are important because that's how you date things. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books, there's the books of the Old Testament, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, 70 years. So, obviously, he is reading the Old Testament that he had in his day. So I gave my attention to the Lord and he began to pray. And he prayed, and he prayed, and, he, and this is one of the neat things, by the way, where he confesses sin. Because why did he confess sin? It's not just his personal sin, he's confessing the nation's sin. Why do you suppose he thought that way? What do we just get through saying the tribulation is supposed to do? He thought the exile was the tribulation. And what, therefore, if the exile were the tribulation, what was it supposed to do? produce repentance on the part of Israel. So you see this mentality? It's coming through. Right here it is. So he sees, you know, for 70 years we've been out of the land. The Lord's disciplining us. The Lord wants us to turn to him. And so he prays this prayer. And that's what he's doing. He's confessing. Verse 5, we have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Notice he indicts in verse 6. He indicts all levels of society, from leadership down to the average person. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame. So amazing, uh, reading over these passages, by the way, like this, these great confessions, um, gives you a flavor of what confessed sin means and what it, what it does. So he goes on, and now verse 17, he, he makes a supplication. O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications for thy sake. Let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. You notice the theme here? The passion is that God's name will not be defaced. We want our God to get the credit. See, it gets back to that land thing and the victory thing. We don't want our God to look like some second-rate coolie. We want our God to be glorified and magnified. And so that's why he's saying, for thy sake, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. What's that? That's the temple. And it's desolate. And while it's desolate, it's, it's telegraphing a message to these Gentiles saying, oh, well, God forsook his people. God is a weak God. And, and Daniel said, we've had enough of this. So therefore, at verse 18, Lord, God, incline your ear and heart. And this is one of those neat bold prayers that you get in the book of Psalms. Uh, if, I've often thought in our church prayer meetings, if anybody got up, I ought to try it sometimes, see what happens. If anybody got up in the middle of a church prayer meeting and made these kinds of petitions, it would be interesting to watch 
what the average person would do in the room. Because what this is saying, crudely speaking, is, Lord, would you open your ear and open your eyes? We want you to see this. Now, it's done in a humble way, but it's done with a power that he is talking to God of the universe, and he says, I want you to see this, I want you to hear this. That's how strongly he feels. It's, he, he's not doing it to demean God. But what these passages like this show you is the powerful conviction that these guys had. It wasn't just, oh, well, Lord, if it's your will. You know, some little limp-wristed flit. It wasn't that at all. It was, it was something that they went face-to-face -face with the God of the universe. And they said, now, we want this straightened out, and we want it now. So, God, come on, what's the deal here? They argued with him about this kind of thing. So, verse 19, O Lord, forgive, listen, and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. See, see the, the, the dwelling on the glory of God. So, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and so forth, while I was still speaking prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, came to me. And by the way, this prayer obviously took a lot of strength. Notice in verse 21, he's totally weary by this time. He, he tells us in verse 21 when this angel showed up. It was that evening. And he gave me instruction. And he said, Daniel, I've come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so heed the message. Get understanding. Now, it's interesting that the angel does what Michael did in another passage, where the angel says, the moment you started praying, you got an answer. Now, the answer's taken some time to get to you. But when you talked, I mean, wherever God's throne is, it's pretty neat. Because, you know, you talk about the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second. Evidently, our prayers go faster than light because they reach the throne of God instantly. Something's wrong with Einstein's rule about C. Um, anyway, so he talked to me, and now, verse 24, he makes the announcement. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sin. To make, But see, when he says 70 weeks, actually it means 77. So there's that 490 thing again. So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So there's seven sevens, 49 years, and then there's these 62 weeks. It would be built again. And so what he's saying is, Daniel, there's going to be a 49-year period. That's that first week. Then there's the next period that's going to go on until Messiah the Prince. We'll get into some of the dating issues, uh, what's going on here as we get to hand out the notes, but we're not there yet. I just want to see the outline. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And that refers to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So there's the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now he makes another prediction. And this is another point that we have to point out. These 62 weeks. 
we have to point out that there's a gap that's going to happen here. And this is argued about. And we're going to deal with this. A lot of people, oh, there's no gap in here. But there is a gap in here. You see, in the verse 25, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven and 62 are 69. So there's seven sevens and 62 sevens. So, so far, 7 plus 62 is 69. That leaves one 7 left over. And, and between the 69, the, this group here, and the other one, in this segment, there's a gap. And the gap is indicated by the grammar of the passage. It says, after the 62 weeks... It doesn't go on and talk about this, this last week. It injects an event that happens. So now the clock, it's like it's interrupted here. Because the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, what nation destroyed the Jewish city and the Jewish sanctuary? after 586 and after, after all those invasions, it was Rome. So it says, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was done in AD 70. The people were the Romans, so that we know who the people are. And the people of the prince who is to come, meaning that whoever this prince is to come, comes out of the revived, or some probably revived Roman Empire. Because the people who destroyed the city in AD 70 are the people of the prince who is to come. And its end will be with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he, pronoun in verse 27, and the rule on pronouns and grammar is that when you have a pronoun in a sentence, it refers back to the antecedent noun. The pronoun has to have an antecedent. Now, what's the nearest person in the text to the pronoun in verse 27? The prince who is to come. Not the Messiah. The Messiah is the first part of verse 26. The prince who is to come is in the nearest the pronoun he in verse 27. So he, who is the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. So for one seven-year period, so again, this is seven years here, this is one of the weeks to the base seven. So you have a seven-year period. He will make a contract with the many. Now, if you look at the, the way the many is used, it's, it's for the Jews here. These are the Jewish people. He will make a contract with the many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete desolation, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. There's an abomination here that's going to happen halfway through that seven-year period. It's at that point, he is going to stop sacrificing grain offerings. He's going to interfere with the temple. Now, turn to Matthew 24 for Jesus' amplification of Daniel's 70th week. This is where the terminology comes, Daniel's 70th week. It's not a figment of some guy that is in a storefront church 
15 years ago that made this up. It comes out of Daniel. And the rabbis know about this. It's only illiterate Americans that have a problem with it. Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus picks up this passage in Daniel and speaks about it. See, here's the, why you need to know the Old Testament before you get into these New Testament passages or you make a mess out of them. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through whom? Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee. Get out of the city when you see that thing happen. So, these are instructions that Jesus gives to what's going to happen when that abomination occurs. And it's halfway through the tribulation period. Now, guess what? When you diagram the book of Revelation, there's several PhD dissertations on this now that have done some very careful work, it turns out that from, Dan, from Revelation chapter 4 on through the end, that it recapitulates Daniel's 70th week. It's got everything in there. It's an amplification of Daniel's 70th week. The book of Revelation is an expansion, if you can draw it this way, it's an expansion of Daniel 9, 25 to 27. It's giving us all the expansion of that way. It talks about the abomination of desolation. It talks about all the rest of the stuff there. It's all packed in. Now, if that's the case, and the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 are rooted in the Old Testament text, without knowing anything about the New Testament. Forget the New Testament a minute. What do you automatically know the book of Revelation is going to be talking about? What is going to be the motif of the book of Revelation? It's going to be what the day of Jehovah, the tribulation, that has what as its purpose? To bring Israel around so that what can happen? The kingdom can come. And what else is going to happen? The nations are going to be judged. And how are they going to be judged? What's going to be happening during this tumultuous period of, of history? Nation is going to rise against nation, armies against armies, with massive amounts of geophysical catastrophes. And all of that is an adumbration for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not an attractive time to look forward to in the, in the Old Testament perspective. It's a horrible time. It's unprecedented sorrow, unprecedented suffering. Never in the history of mankind will there ever be a global... This is not just one country here having an earthquake. This is the whole world falling apart. And I frankly think that as a result of the geophysical catastrophes in the tribulation, that explains why Armageddon, when all the armies come together, they are using very primitive military strategies. Namely, it sounds like they're fighting each other like they did back in, before Christ. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. Armies don't fight that way. First of all, with firepower like we have today, you don't mass troops. There are no more pickets charges. It doesn't work anymore in the age of the machine gun. So, in the age of bombing. So, how do we explain the fact that Armageddon and this future battle is, is so primitive? I think the answer is quite simple. If you have the world subject to geophysical catastrophes, what's going to happen to the satellites that we use for all our navigation, GPS? 
When you have meteorite showers, what's going to happen to the satellites that are orbiting the Earth? They're going to be wrecked. GPS goes down. Where's your navigation for your, for your systems that rely on GPS, which is all the aircraft of the world? What's going to happen to all your missiles that use GPS? Malfunction. These weapon systems, the high-tech weaponry is going to fall apart. What's going to happen to oil? What are earthquake going to do to pipelines? Rupture them. Where are you going to get gas from to operate? See, people don't think about these things. But the Bible is very consistent. If you just take the text the way it was written and stop trying to jam it with our ideas about what's going to happen and, oh, well, that has to be a metaphor. It can't literally happen. Well, yes, it can literally happen. Jesus was literally born in a literal town called Bethlehem. And it was exactly the right time and exactly the right place to a literal girl who literally was a descendant of David. All that was fulfilled literally. Well, you know, is God's arm shortened now? He can't fulfill his prophecies literally? I don't think so. So as we march on in the notes, there's some things here that, uh, if you can get the perspective on it, um, page 117, just to kind of quickly summarize tonight, because we don't want to spend any more time on this. Um, on 117 is Israel's final milestone. And that's going to be uh, her coming, uh, her national repentance, and then the prince that shall come, which we just covered. In Jerusalem, Jews will be regathered in the land. Obviously, they have to be regathered prior to the abomination of desolation. Why is that? You just read about the abomination of desolation in a what? In a temple. And a temple is in Jerusalem. And this is going to be there by the tribulation time. So what does that tell you is going to happen first? The temple's got to be rebuilt. It's got to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Can you figure out how it's going to be? I don't know. With the Muslims on Al-Aqsa sitting up there, and Jews aren't going to be building a temple in Al-Aqsa. So where are they going to build a temple? What's going to happen? Something's going to happen. It's kind of interesting to think about. The Jews have to get their temple built. And it's going to have to happen before the tribulation happens. Because that temple has to exist. It has to have protocols. It has to have worship. It has to have sacrifices. And those sacrifices, worships, and protocols have to be ruptured by this prince who shall come. And he's going to make a covenant with Israel. So certain things you can infer backwards from this. Israel has to exist. From 1948, that's in place. Israel now exists. The only thing that, the next thing that had to be in place happened in 1967. What happened in 1967 of significance? The Jews controlled Jerusalem. So 1948, they get the land. 1967, they control the city. They don't control the Temple Mount completely. That's yet to come. So that's kind of interesting to think how that's going to take place. But it's going to have to take place because all this has to be literally fulfilled. See, that's why if we take a literal stand, it's not that we're saying Jews are godly. We're not saying that the modern state of Israel is the kingdom of God. That's a misinterpretation that people who hear us think we're saying. We are not saying that. We're simply saying that in order for Christ to come back, he has to come back to a nation in the land and come back to a temple that's functioning. Or will have been stopped by the prince that shall come. That's all we're saying. 
So we're saying that we're seeing the stage being set. It's not necessarily fulfilled prophecy in that sense, spectacularly, but it's the adumbration, it's the first steps we're watching in our day. That's what's so exciting about the news in our time. We are watching God start to place the furniture in place for his next play. And it's a neat time to be in to watch this take place. Think of all the generations of Christians that have lived for 1,900 years that never saw Israel in the land. It's been our privilege to see Israel come back. Think of all the generation of Christians that never have seen the Jews control Jerusalem. We have seen that. We may be the generation who will see the rise of the temple. Father, we thank you for the fact that you work all things after your will. We thank you that you are in control of all the details of history. And we take heart for that because we know that if you control all the details of history, that means you control all the details of our personal lives. And we know, therefore, that we don't live in a chaos. We don't live in an uncontrolled environment. We don't control it, but we know you and that you do control it, and that you are good, that you are just, that you are righteous. Help us to appreciate that in our daily lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have some time here for some Q&A. Uh, yes? When the Federalists say that um, all of the stuff that happened, you know, that, that we understand happening that you were talking about tonight at, at the three and a half year point in the temple, and they say that all of that happened with the Romans, what do they do with the physical catastrophes that the Bible says, you know, are going to be taking place in that time period? Um, question is about preteritism. Uh, that's one of the. If you look on, um, let's see. If you look on page 120, I point out there's five scenarios of linking the church to these prophetic passages. There's five views that are rampant today, and uh, I'm going to go through all five of those. And one of them is Joyce has just raised. She, she's used the word preteritism. And since those of you that stay for Q and A like to get ahead of everybody else, um, let let me uh, right away define a vocabulary word here. You can't think without proper vocabulary. Okay, so let's get a voca two vocabulary words. Here are two words we're going to be using: preteritism and futurism. Okay. Well, let's define three words while we're historicism. Preteritism, the word spelled there on page 120. Futurism and historicism. Those three words define the three perspectives of prophetic literature that have existed in the church's history. Actually, I, I should say, oops, there's a fourth one I didn't define, and that's idealism. So there's actually four positions. Preteritism, futurism, historicism, and idealism. I'm not going to even bother with historicism and, and idealism, because this is not a class in eschatology per se, okay? But we're only going to deal with preteritism and futurism. Here's the definition of preteritism. 
the word preteritism comes from Greek word means past. And the idea of preteritism is that none or very little prophecy remains left to be fulfilled. All this stuff you read about in the book of Revelation has already happened. Happened in A.D. 70. And we're going to expand page 120. You can see I start to talk about preteritism and I'm going to answer Joyce's questions as well as some related questions on, on those pages. I'll, I'll address them in a preliminary way tonight because she asked the question. But before I answer that question, I want to define these four words for you. Preteritism means that none or some very few prophecies remain yet to be fulfilled. Everything's happened in the past. Preterite means past. Futurism is the antonym, and it means future. It means most of the prophetic passages have yet to be fulfilled. Okay? So that's futurism. Now, the question is, what is, you suppose, historicism? Historicism is the fact that the passages and prophecy are being fulfilled by the church down through history. That's historicism. The passages are being fulfilled by the church down through history. Idealism is basically, you don't run into that much. That's a liberal concept that revelation, the prophetic passages, are kind of a, a way of looking at history to improve your life sort of stuff. So they're kind of irrelevant to us. Let me go back then to the three terms and we'll go through now. We've defined all three of those words. Let me describe briefly where they came from and what their background is. Preteritism, um, in a mild form, existed in early church history in this, in that some early, and this is a minority view, by the way. This was not the majority view. There's a minority of early, uh, of some Christians who thought of the A.D. 70. A.D. 70 was a horrible time. I mean, it was a massive thing. I mean, you can imagine, even Christians worshipped in Jerusalem until the Romans destroyed the place. And it was very traumatic. And we know that some of the prophecies did refer to A.D. 70. Luke's prophecy clearly has A.D. 70 in mind. So, what happened was that about two and three hundred years after Jesus, there arose a few historians who argued that the um, fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, the rise of Nero, the madman who fiddled while Rome burned and also torched Christians in the process, um, those events were a tribulation of the church. And therefore, they kind of looked upon the tribulation as, as getting over after Constantine. What did Constantine do in church history? Anybody know? He was the emperor of Rome. And what did he, what's he's, he's known for? He capitulated and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So you can imagine that the Christians who had suffered for centuries, what do you think they thought when Constantine finally abdicated, so to speak, and let Christianity take control as the official religion. Wouldn't you be relieved? So you can understand why people living in that time would have, if they didn't know the details of the text and they didn't have good Bible teaching, 
they would tend to think of the fact that that's over with. So that's the mild version of preteritism. They viewed it as a past thing. They never had the idea that Christ had come, by the way. It's just that some of these prophecies were done with. Well, that's all we heard about preteritism until the last 50 years, and some certain people in reform circles have risen up out of the floor in the woodwork. And now these guys are really adamant, detailed, dogmatic, and aggressive preterists. And they believe that all the prophecies, with a few little exceptions here and there, have passed, and that if Nero and Constantine and all the rest have nothing to do with it, it's all AD 70. And we're going to get into that. I'm just finishing up the notes. In fact, today I was working on them, and they'll be handed out next week. So for ne next week, we're going to deal with the church, and probably the week after that, we'll start into preteritism, and we'll have to break for the holidays, and after the new holidays, we'll come back, we'll finish preteritism, and go through the other four views of the church and the tribulation. But, I, I, but let, let me go back to Joyce's question. Preteritism... Right now, in our time, you will find it in reformed circles. It will always be associated with premillennial, uh, with postmillennialism and amillennialism. I, I don't, I don't see how it could ever be associated with premillennialism. It's an outgrowth of amillennialism and postmillennialism. Now, what do we mean by that? What, what's the deal? Amillennialism holds there's no kingdom. Church basically is the kingdom. Post uh, millennialism holds that the everything's getting better and better. You've noticed that, of course. Uh, everything is getting better and better, and when the church finally uh, Christianizes the world, then Jesus comes back to say, "Good job, well done." And the people who take the amillennial, postmillennial position have traditionally had a difficulty. And the difficulty has been all the pessimistic chapters, all these, these stories about tribulation, all this, this stuff which looks like it's anything but the world's getting better and better. So they had to do something with those passages. Preteritism gives them the tool to get around the pessimistic passages and take a bulldozer and shove them all back in the past. And that unblocks the church's future for progress. So there's a motivation that's connected here with this. Now, obviously, to do this runs into some, some problems. Uh, one of which is that uh, we didn't notice that Jesus returned in A.D. 70. A slight problem there. Uh, since it's said that the angel, remember on the Mount of Olives, what did the angel tell the disciples when they were looking up and watching Jesus go up, 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 up? What did the angel say to them? He's going to come back as you have seen him. Anybody see Jesus return in AD 70? I don't, I don't read anything in church history about Christ coming back in AD 70. So now how do you suppose they have to handle this? Let's think about this a minute. They've got natural catastrophes. Jesus coming back. Now how is all that going to be in AD 70? What are you going to do when it says, for example, a star has fallen from heaven? Just physical catastrophe. Now, if you are a preterist, try to get your head inside preteritism for a minute. 
How would you defend it? What are you going to have to do to those passages? Symbolize them. Exactly. And you're going to try desperately to find a way of interpreting those passages in a symbolic way. When Joseph dreamed a dream, he viewed his family in astronomical terms. Remember the dream? When he was a young boy, he dreamed of the sun and the moon and the stars. And he, remember, he got kind of a little arrogant and he started talking about how he, they worshipped him and so forth. Now that was a symbolic use of astronomical terminology. So guess where they go to get their symbology? The stars falling from heaven is the destruction of the nation Israel. And so this is how they develop a, a, a symbology, a symbolic hermeneutic. Um, they go back and simply say that um, all those, those catastrophe passages aren't to be taken literally. They are just symbols for upheaval and, and among the nations. And so do you also see now why preteritism has conveniently married amillennialism? What has amillennialism already done to prepare the way? It symbolized the literalness of the coming kingdom, hasn't it? All the blessings and the renovation of the earth for the return of Christ, all that's to be symbolic. So you see, the hermeneutic has already been set in place in amillennialism and postmillennialism to go one step further into preteritism. I see preteritism as just an ex further extension of that same tendency. It's Augustine all over again who introduced uh, this allegorical interpretation, in a systematic way at least, to the, to the church. So this is why in your mind's eye you want to be prepared that if you are around people of the Reformed persuasion who are amillennial and premillennial, or postmillennial I mean, you're going to run into preteritism today. It's just in the air all around us. So that's one of the big views. You can see, however, why it's hard if you were a premillennialist. You've already got a what kind of hermeneutic for the Old Testament. You've got a literal hermeneutic for the Old Testament. So you wouldn't be predisposed with a premillennial view, even if you were Reformed. And there are, by the way, Reformed premillennialists who are not preterists. And they probably never will be preterists simply because they've already bought into a literal hermeneutic and the literal hermeneutic prevents you from doing what the preterist does with these texts. The coming of Jesus, what do they do with that? Well, one of the things they do with that is they see him in the sense of uh, coming in the clouds means, and they take symbols out of the book of Psalms, uh, which, by the way, in many pads, I don't think they were symbolic. I think they were literal. When Jehovah God uh, is spoken of as riding the clouds, I think that's a, that could be a reference to Sinai and the supernatural events attending the Exodus. But they take those passages as symbolic, and so when they say Christ's coming, it meant that he came in judgment upon the nation Israel. Um, the problem, again, with that is that when you read what... And that's why I had you go back to Table 8 to set you up for the Old Testament view of history. In the Old Testament mentality, what was all the trouble? Was the trouble and the tribulation in order to destroy Israel or to cause repentance to regain Israel? You see? And so, by making A.D. 70 a coming of the Lord in judgment, they've got to say it's finished. And you talk about replacement theology. 
the church has replaced Israel. You've got to see that these views have a built-in logic to them. And you'll be, you'll be very confused when you brush up against people that think this way if you can't, ahead of time, walk into the situation realizing, okay, I don't know all the details, but I see the basic structure. I get the basic skeleton. They're amillennial or post-male. They're going to be symbolic in their interpretation. And they believe all this is to the past. Now, internal to the preterist movement right now, they're having a struggle within themselves because the, they have moderate preterists, which are, uh, by the way, Sproul, R.C. Sproul is a preterist, uh, moderate preterist. And then uh, a guy named Ken Gentry is a moderate preterist. Now, what do I mean by uh, a moderate or partial preterist? These guys are saying most of the prophecies happen in AD 70, but they still believe in orthodox return of Jesus. But, but they've stripped it of most of the content. Then they, in turn, are fighting people in their own camp, who I think are more consistent, who are arguing that there is no future resurrection, there will be no future return of Jesus. It all has happened in A.D. 70. And those are what we call the, the full preterists. And they are debating among themselves. But I think the full preterists are going to carry the day. And the reason I think so is because they're consistent. The moderate preterists are in a halfway house. They're, they're trying to use a symbolic interpolation, but then they look at the church creeds and they understand it's heresy to deny the return of Christ. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place in their own system. But that's the nature of what's happening in that area. So I'll get into the details of what they do as we go into the notes, but that's basically their position. Any other simple questions that we can answer in one minute? <laughs> yes? You made a comment about the Jews weren't in the World Trade Center when it was destroyed. What, what was that story? That was an Arab story. Uh, it came out of Egypt, I believe, uh, which they claimed that they tried to say that the World Trade Center incident was totally Zionist. It was a Zionist plot to start a war with the Arabs. And therefore, they claimed that the Jews never showed up for work on that day, which is false. But, I mean, that's, that's what they say. I heard another story, too, that the Jews want to set up the king of England as the leader of the world, and they'll back them up with their money, and they'll actually rule the world. That's the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it's an old document that has been circulating for about a hundred years, started actually in Russia. The original version held that it was going to be, uh, I think, the Russians or the Germans, and then it somehow got connected with the throne of England. But it's an anti-Semitic document that... that uh, I heard another story that the Jews are financing this Hezbollah and all that, that are causing all this terrorism over there. Yeah, now that makes sense since they are, Al-Qaeda is against the Jews. Say, it's, it's all the same mentality. Everything's the Jews' fault. Let me tell you something about this, this, this thing that started in Germany. You know, the Nazis loved to say it was the Jews that caused the downfall of, of Germany because the Jews were in the banking system. You know why the Jews were in the banking system, historically? They weren't allowed to do anything else by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church had laws against usury. And they weren't allowed. Any Catholic could make loans. So guess who made, had to make the loans? 
was the Jews, who loaned the money to the Spanish to discover America. It was the Jews. So it was the Jews that had to handle the money, not because they had a big plot. It was because that was the only thing they could do. And very interesting to go back and study some of this, where it comes from. But it, you'll see that Europe traditionally has been very anti-Semitic. And the, in summary here, quickly, let me tell you why. There's a reason why Europe is anti-Semitic. What, what two groups have dominated religiously Europe? Roman Catholicism and Lutheran and Reformed Protestantism. Now ask yourself in those three groups, what's the predominant eschatology? They all believe the same thing. They're all amillennial. There's no future for the Jew in amillennialism. You see how it all fits together. The only group in Germany that, that opposed Adolf Hitler among the Germans were the German brethren. And what do you suppose their eschatology was? They were pre-mills. The head of the German Army Officers Union was a premillennialist. Hermann Goring, Adolf Hitler, and his uh, other guy there, um, who was his propagandist? Huh? Goebbels. They visited this guy's house because he was the head of the German Army Officers Union in 1933, and Hitler, when he wrote, was rising to power, realized the Nazis in Germany had to make friends with the German Army. So he wanted to work a deal with this guy. And he was, I forgot what the name, I think it was called the Steel Helmet in German, which was the name of the German Army Officers Union. So they had a little, uh, they came down to his house, I guess he lived in Bavaria somewhere, and they had a little discussion. And the Nazis were really desperate to get this guy's help. This story, by the way, is in uh, Hal Lindsey's book, uh, Road to Holocaust. And um, so they negotiated, and, and while they were negotiating, this guy asked Hitler about, well, what's the, what's the, what's the program for no, the Nazis? I mean, what are the, what's your Nazi party want to do to Germany here? What's your, your long-range program? And the long-range program was that the whole problem of Germany was the Jews. So we have to have a final solution to the Jewish problem. Well, now, how do you suppose that hit when this guy's sitting there as a premillennialist? Guess what he did? He said no. And then because the Nazis were taking over power, he did something else. He came to New York City and got out of Germany. So that's an interesting little history story for you to keep in your back pocket as to what these eschatologies play a powerful role. And this is to this day. Think about it. When you read your newspaper about the desecration of the synagogues and graveyards of Jews in France going on right now, just know where it comes from. Okay? Oh, yeah. You're going to see, if, if things get hot in the Middle East, unfortunately, inside evangelicalism, you're going to see a split. Because, and it's going to be right down eschatological lines. 
the, the Christians who are pre-mill are going to be at the throats of the Christians that are all mill. It's going to divide evangelical Christianity in the next five, ten years if this thing erupts. Because the rest, those of us who are pre-mill will never abandon Israel. They believe that Israel has been totally replaced by the church, and why should we bother to protect Israel? It's going to erupt. Because you have basic conflicting beliefs. Okay, well, time's up, and we'll, uh, next week we'll work on further into the church.